I pressed the wrong buttons. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Reason for Hope. I'm sorry, I pressed the wrong button or something, or I blame the machinery. Something went wrong, I don't know. But uh, we are here, Reason for Hope, with you for the next hour. Glad you're joining us. We'll get our act together here and continue on strong. A Reason for Hope is a live broadcast for the next hour. We'll be with you to receive your questions on the Bible. That's right, your questions as we go along live on our various platforms. We welcome you to send in your questions and we will endeavor to find the answer and the answers in God's Word, the Bible. That's what we're all about. Any honest question, there's no dumb question as long as it's an honest question and as long as you know we're going to find the answer in the Word and we're very happy to be doing that with you. Um, what a blessing that that is. My name is Dave Robson. I'll be your host today and filled in those questions as they come on into my laptop over here and also with us is pastor sean richards as is often the case how are you doing today sir good i'm definitely questioning a lot of things i you know the internet is a source of abuse and confusion but also great insight and clarity someone pointed out to me that baloney is just hot dog flavored pancakes <laughs> you've blown my mind I, that was my sentiment exactly yeah i'll never look at the same again well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, also with us, Pastor Peter Martin. How are you doing? Doing good. Yeah, okay. so I was telling you guys before the show, this is my last show for a couple weeks. Yeah, you have pretty a exciting. son on the way. You mentioned last time. Hello, boy. Yeah. Hello, boy. Wednesday. <laughs> Wednesday or sooner. Wednesday possibly. or sooner. <laughs> yeah. Well, great. Well, we'll be praying for you with that addition to your family and look forward to your return. Absolutely. Probably covered in, you know. Spit up and, and spit up pee and, and yeah. some of it will be his. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's disturbing. <laughs> so there are multiple ways that you can join us. And if you're hearing us and seeing us, I apologize, but you've already found a way to do that. Uh, but A Reason for Hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, an outreach ministry of us over here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. So you can find us at our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Follow the Watch Live tab. If you're on another platform and you have problems, if there's technical issues, it's good to try one of the other platforms. We always recommend our website. That's a great kind of home base for you to go to. But we're also on Facebook, calvarychristianfellowship.com. We're live there as well. <clears throat> and we have an app that you can download. Go to your app store, look for our church name, and download the app for your mobile device or even Roku and Apple TV should you want to put us on your big screen TV, maybe have your cell phone in hand to do the questions and then watch us on the big screen. Sounds like a good setup. That's it. I wish I could do that, but I'm here, you know, creating the content. So uh, on YouTube, we are at uh, A Reason for Hope. That's the name of the channel on YouTube, A Reason for Hope. You can join us there. You can follow our, our senior pastor, Scott Richards, on Twitter as well at Scott R4H. That's Scott, letter R, number four, letter H. And he posts highlights from the show and uh, commentary on world events and all kinds of things, humorous things and and serious things and all the, the things. Um, and not to forget, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. If you're listening on the radio, you are listening to our previous show recorded. So you're a day late. I'm so sorry. But do send your questions to that email address and we will get to them on our next broadcast. And consider joining us live on one of the other platforms that I mentioned. Whew. With all that being said, Peter, because it's your last time here for a few weeks and who knows how long, would you like to pray for us? I would, yeah. That'd be great. Father, we love you so much. We're thankful for all the amazing and wonderful things you're doing in our lives. I do thank you for what you're doing personally with me and my wife. 
Uh, I do pray for this broadcast right now that we would be able to focus in on your word and truth, that uh, you would instruct and guide us through these things, and that all the questions that would be asked would be uh, things that would benefit people as we answer them to the best of our ability, that they would help people engage better with the problems in their own life, as well as uh, maybe prepare them a little bit more to engage with friends and family members who have differing views. We're thankful for you, God, in your name. Mm. Amen. 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 Thank you. Um, so again, do send in your questions on those the chat boxes. Get in there early. Um, we'd love to get to all of your questions. We have a couple of leftover questions from yesterday that we didn't get to that we will. But before all of that, it's Thursday, which means Rhetoric Thursday. Rhetoric being the art of speaking. Now I see I'm learning. I'm learning over here. <laughs> uh, what have you guys got to share with us today? All right. So uh, we're going through a list of logical fallacies because as Dave shared with us, it is the art of public speaking specifically, but it also transfers into just being a better communicator, learning how to better share what your ideas are in a clear, concise way without stepping into logical fallacies, therefore confusing the topic or confusing the people listening to you. Uh, as well as having more productive conversations in your own personal life, as well as with antagonistic forces out there who you want to share the truth and goodness with of God with them. Because as Aristotle said, who really developed this form of dialogue called, that we call rhetoric, it's not just enough to know what to say, it is enough, you have to also know how to say it, right? So mm -hmm. being a clear communicator is very, very important. So today we're going to be talking about a very common one. This is not, you do hear it, all over the place in politics, but it's just one of these very pervasive ones. People make it all the time. I see it all the time in counseling, so I'll give you guys some uh, personal tips in home dialogue and communication as well, but it's called the nirvana fallacy or the utopian fallacy. Now, what this is, is I'm going to attack someone's argument <coughs> because I feel as though it doesn't live up to an idealized version of reality. So there are many versions of this that you see within the scriptures, but essentially, again, I'm, I'm attacking someone's position, I'm attacking someone's platform or behavior because it's not perfect. And I'm ignoring the fact that we live in an imperfect world and no topic, no foundation, no argument is going to be absolutely exhaustive and perfect. There's always going to be flaws with it, and therefore sometimes we have to live in that imperfect world. So good example of it that we see in the Bible is actually found in the book of Job. In fact, the book of Job is just one big nirvana fallacy. So when Job undergoes all the terrible things that he undergoes in the beginning of the book, we know as the reader, because the author has let us in on this secret, that Job is not suffering due to his own bad decisions. However, his friends have a nirvana fallacy. They believe, well, if God is good, and God is all-powerful, bless you. If God is good and God is all-powerful. I muted my mic, so you probably didn't hear me. <laughs> oh, dang it. I didn't have to say it, so now everyone's confused. <laughs> anyway, so bless God, you, everyone. You get used to it. <laughs> so if God is good and God is all-powerful, if bad things are occurring within your life, it must be some form or fashion of penalty for your bad behavior because God wouldn't allow bad things to happen to good people, right? So... Job has an issue with this, and obviously he defends himself, but in the conversation, he himself accuses God of doing wrong to him. So he actually does believe that something unjust has occurred within his life because he has been a good man, and God has allowed these evil things to happen. So you actually see both Job's friends and Job himself performing this fallacy simultaneously. 
And it's not until the end of the book where God shows up and shows all of them that they are wrong. And he explains to them that, yes, you are in a fallen, sinful, sin-ridden existence. And because of that, bad things do indeed happen to good people. And as a prime example, God actually shows to massive creatures and explains to Job and his friends that these creatures, although they are scary and dangerous and deadly, they do serve some sort of a good or profitable purpose in God's overall overarching sovereignty. So that kind of diffuses their debate. So before I get into more specific examples in our day and age and communication and counseling, do you have any of the other biblical examples you want to get into? No, as far as servicing the point, people obviously remember the book of Job as this question that we all ask from time to time. And when we apply it to the New Testament, obviously there's an expectation of the Messiah fulfilling a perfect purpose. Mm. But they deny Jesus as being the Messiah because he isn't perfect, but note, according to their version of it. And right. that's what we need to watch out for. Right, absolutely. So you'd be talking about the the Jewish leaders who are expecting the Messiah to come and to have a perfect political system right. that would set them up in opposition against the Romans. And Jesus has to explain to them, I am perfect, but I'm not here to do that right now. <laughs> and that's the big error in this. That's the fallacy, is not only are you expecting perfection where it can't be found, but even where they found perfection, they found fault. Why? Because of a faulty definition of what perfect is. Absolutely. So you see this in our political world all over the place because, again, <laughs> since we live in a fallen world, it's not hard to find a problem with a particular policy, right? So, And that's why across the board, every politician does this. So even if you have a system that is functioning very well, you could always find some sort of a flaw with it because people are imperfect. So a good example with this uh, would be, let's say, capitalism versus more of a socialistic economy, right? So people who are more on the socialistic side, they will say, well, capitalism is evil because obviously people, it's more of a meritocracy. People have to earn their keep, but it also values or advantages people who are in the more favored groups and it disadvantages people who are in the not favored groups. So it's very difficult to come up out of poverty. And it's very- ideas and progress based on greed and so forth. And they would say, because at its root, there is an evil promoted that that whole system should be thrown out in favor of what? Exactly. So they would say, well, if it motivates greed, isn't that a greedy system, as you said? And is that really a good motivator? And also, is it really fair that there are people that are at the bottom of the economic system and it's much more difficult for them to gain the privileges that people at the top of the system would gain? And so therefore, we should have a system in which everything is just even, right? It's totally egalitarian. People at the bottom will bump them up. Uh, utilizing funds from people at the top, so they will be bumped down, and then we'll have an even playing field, and then everyone will be able to work all according to their ability and each according to his need, as Karl Marx would put it. And so, is responsible for 100 million deaths in the last 100 years in a system that's been failed every single time it's tried. But let's not acknowledge that. That's right. So uh, the, the more socialistic-minded people, they are pointing out real errors within the capitalistic system. However, the mistake, and this is the fallacy, the mistake is assuming that there is a system that would not have any errors. And so the reason why it's very dangerous, any political system that's utopian, the reason why it always turns into a dystopian nightmare is because there is no way to create a utopia on this earth, not given the current climate and the current human dispositions that we have. 
So Beatrice Webb is a very good example of this. She was a one of the big proponents of socialistic policy within actually the UK. Dave, maybe you know her uh, because everyone in England knows each other, right? That's right. Yeah. It's only three of us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so she actually was a huge proponent for socialistic welfare programs within the UK back in the 1800s. And during her tenure, she said, I have staked everything on the fundamental belief that mankind is inherently good. And then later on in her life, she lamented and said, now I realize that there is something intrinsically wrong with man that no social system will ever be able to repair. Right. So what she recognizes, it's not the system that's broken, it's man that's broken. And no matter how good the system is, it will never actually fix or uh, repair what's broken inherently within mankind. Because so, even if we had perfection, we wouldn't recognize it because we have no reference point. Arguing off of something you don't know or have is the error. So actually, when you have a utopian system, it becomes more detrimental because its goal is utopia. So when you have a non-utopian system like capitalism, its goal is not utopia. It's not heaven. It's just what is the best possible system we can have given the material that we got, right? We're not trying to reach utopia. We don't think we can reach utopia. But how do we reward best set up a system that's fair, right? That rewards people who do well and that disadvantages people who don't do well, right? And that's the idea. So in marriage counseling, I see this all the time. So again, it's very, very easy to pick out problems with your partner. It's very easy to look at your partner and say, well, of course I reacted this way because you spoke to me in this manner, right? It's very, very easy to look at your partner and say, well, you use this tone of voice or you criticize me in this way or you should have done this or you should have been able to anticipate my needs here and therefore I am upset with you. That is utilizing this utopian fallacy. Now, as a thought experiment, as a thought exercise, I do like to have couples go through ideals. I like, I like to say like, ideally, how would you like your partner to approach you? But I always temper expectations and say, just so you know, in the heat of the moment, the odds of them being able to do this, to implement this perfectly, are basically zero, right? They're, they're, they're going to try. But man, when I'm heated, the last thing I'm going to be able to do is go up to my wife and say, you know, honey, the way that you spoke to me earlier, it just really was a disrespectful tone of voice. And it does hurt my feelings, but I do still love you and I value our relationship. Let's work towards a good solution together in this conversation. That'd be great if someone would have the semblance of mind to do that. It's just not realistic, right? So usually it's going to come out hot. Usually it's going to come out fiery. And you have to learn how to relate to your partner when they're communicating in a way that's not ideal, right? So it's not up to you to expect ideal communication from your partner. But given the circumstances, what's the best way for you to react or return? So many people shrink away from conflict or they don't engage in conflict at all because unless my partner engages me in this ideal way, I'm just not going to do it. Uh, well, that's, that's very foolish and that's very fallacious way of dealing with your communication. We have to deal with what we have, not with what we hope we can have. And so learning how to adjust yourself and orient yourself to imperfection is a way to avoid this utopian fallacy. Now, if someone aims this fallacy at you and says, well, well, you know, you did this wrong or your plan with the kids did not work out or something like that. The best way to put it, and this is very important, and I kind of wish more politicians would do this. When someone aims this fallacy at you, especially in marriage, what essentially they're doing is they're saying, I want things my way. And if I'm not going to get it my way, I'm not going to play ball. 
I'm going to pick up my things and I'm going to go home. So I'm going to do that by showing you just how much you failed at the game. Exactly. So the best way to actually respond to it is not to systematically defend your point of view, to go back and say, I'm going to show you everything about what's right about my point of view and go, because they're always going to find something wrong with it because it is insufficient and there are problems. The better way to approach it is to say, okay, this is the reason why I've done it this way. Can you give me a better solution? Can you give me a better solution to what we can do? Because anyone can tear down an argument. Very few people know how to build one up, right? Do you know a better solution that is free from these excesses and that would actually be more beneficial to the way we are doing things, right? Now, they might, by the way, they might have a better solution. It won't be a perfect one, but they might have a better one. You might be able to compromise a little bit, but you might be able to come to a unified agreement. So if you are talking to someone, uh, me and you were talking a little earlier about various utopian fallacies that we hear in dialogues with Muslims and atheists and, and people like that. So, Sean, can you give us an example of one that you've heard from, uh, say, like a Muslim or an atheist and how you've countered it? Well, obviously, if you're dealing with those who are adherents to Islam, the one you're going to see the most often is going to be that the by the Quran is superior to the Bible because it's been perfectly preserved right down to the letter. Now, this expectation is not only irrational, no text communicated through oral tradition or written tradition is going to be able to be transferred that way, especially until uh, the printing of the photocopier and so forth, the invention of it. So we need to not lower our standards for divine scripture, not just to align with reality, but to point out to them okay, well, if you present this information about the Quran, does the Quran even say that? Does this standard actually meet up to its own hype? Because what they're doing is a sense is building up or promoting something that's outright false mm -hmm. about both of our scriptures and saying it must adhere to a standard that doesn't exist. But if on the other hand we're to take another step back and go, well, what about in a more general view? the Allah of the Quran is superior to the God, the Yahweh of the Bible, because, and atheists would level this too, the Allah of the Quran is superior in his dealings with sin, and they would bring up the problem of evil. And like we started this conversation with, the fundamental mistake of the problem of evil is it levels an assumption about God that his only purpose is to prevent things that I don't like. Hmm. It makes it sound kind of trivial when you're bringing up things like kids suffering from bone cancer, uh, outbreaks and natural disasters and so forth. Why would a good God let these sort of things happen? But you and I raise our hands and go, well, our God is not just all-powerful and all-good, but all-knowing. He would know what good to allow and what to prevent. We'd never give him credit for things that never happened because he prevented them. Thus, there's nothing to complain about. Mm. But if you ask, why was this evil allowed? You have to ask the question, are you God? Mm. Do you know everything that would come or would have come from those things? That's why we don't like to deal with hypotheticals on this show. We don't know the heart. We don't know the future. We aren't God. We can't expect of us nirvana. And so the question is, if you were going to put forward this perfect world, who would exist in it? Hmm. What is ultimately the argument that's being presented here? This fake God doesn't do what I decided he should do, therefore he doesn't exist. We agree. What does that have to do with God? Hmm. And it's pointing out, okay, if there was a God, 
who wasn't just all-loving, isn't just all-knowing, could he be, and this is the suggestion, could he be all-knowing? Could he know what evil to allow and what to prevent? Then you get to the heart of the issue. Then they say, well, this is the evil I've experienced. This is why I have trouble trusting God. And now we get from philosophy to the real issue, to the emotions, to the impact that trauma, rightfully so, has had on this life, and we get to a more productive conversation. But notice that in the problem of evil, we've disarmed the claim, God should be perfect as I see perfect. Or in the Quran, the Quran should be the standard for all divine scripture when the Quran doesn't even meet up to that standard. We're stepping out of nirvana, this mystical fantasy perfect that's determined by the speaker, not by reality and saying, what is reality, and how do we fit into that mold? Absolutely. So for God, when he balances things, he has to balance not only his goodness and his purposes, but also human free will. And because he has to balance free will, he, you can't have perfect choice and also perfect circumstances, because when you have perfect choice, you have the liberty to make the wrong decision, hence inviting sin into the perfect creation and allowing decay and destruction and sin and death and everything that goes along with it. So yeah, really good point, Sean. I, I hope that has been a useful conversation for you guys. Anything you'd like to add onto that conversation, Dave? No. <laughs> awesome. All right, well, we'll conclude Just right thank you. That. Yeah. I haven't learned enough from you to have the art of public speaking yet. And to actually speak. <laughs> to actually speak at all. We're still learning too. <laughs> no, very good. Thank you. We've got some great questions coming in. You guys ready? Let's do yeah. it, man. Um, we do have a couple of questions uh, from yesterday, one that was sent again through email. Thank you for that and hanging in there. Uh, firstly, Marie asked, um, uh, and heart, heart goes out. my heart goes out to you, Marie, as well with your question. I understand and believe that I am redeemed by the blood of Christ, but why then does my heart not rejoice? Instead, I feel pain and guilt that doesn't dissipate. How can I be sure I'm saved and reconciled with God and Jesus? Mm. Great question. No, awesome question. So, uh, what you're expressing, in essence, there, there might be some other factors that we're not privy to, so uh, I can't really speak into those, obviously. But if you're experiencing this deep sorrow and this deep loss, you have to remember that we interpret the Bible, we experience God through our mind, right? That's how we're able to experience God in any capacity. So if the mind is broken, our connection to God is also going to feel fractured and broken. doesn't mean it is. But it just means it will feel that way because mm. that's the filter that all this information is passing through. So if there are traumas or issues or difficulties or losses occurring in your day-to-day -day life, that would have a propensity to making you feel as though things are darker, more desperate, and more despairing than they actually are. If you're having relationship problems, it's very easy to assume up to God and say, man, if I'm having all these difficulty with these human problems and people are thinking that I'm a terrible person and they don't like me, then maybe God doesn't like me and maybe mm. I'm not actually loved and maybe I don't have a relationship with him. So it's, it's very easy to project human issues upon God and that's very, very difficult to deal with. So my encouragement to you is if something uh, really tragic is happening within your life, please seek out help to deal with mm. that because possibly a lot of the emotions you're experiencing have explanations in your current circumstances and situations. Now, in a broad theological sense, what I would say is that the exercising of faith, right? Faith is an activity of the will. We decide to do it. It's not something that we passively receive. It's not like I all of a sudden have faith. It's I am choosing to act as though this thing is true 
even if I don't feel it in an emotional sense. Mm. So the activity of faith, again, it's an act of the will. It's something that you decide to do. So when we say that we believe in Jesus, we accept him as being Lord of our lives, we accept him as being exactly who he said he is, exactly who he revealed himself to be within Scripture, we trust in what he said, we trust in the things that he has done, namely dying for you on the cross, right? Putting your faith in Jesus to that capacity is something that you choose to do. You elect to do it through your will. Now, your emotions will war against that, but the life of faith is choosing to act upon what you believe to be true and not on what you feel to be true. Mm. Now, you can supplement and strengthen your faith through rationality, meaning you can actually investigate it and say, well, I do choose to act upon this faith. I do choose to believe that Jesus is who he said he is, but I also want to investigate do I, is there good reason to believe that, right? Is there good reason to believe that God loves me and cares for me? Why should I believe that God loves me and cares for me? So uh, a passage that's always helped me out, as I struggle a lot with this, and then I'll turn it over to you, Sean. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, when Paul is talking about, uh, well, he's talking to, should I say it that way? He is communicating to a group of Christians who are undergoing intense amounts of suffering. And in fact, the psalm, you know how some Christians just got like a, a song that they that they just like, it becomes like the church song and everyone's kind of singing it. This was their church song. Uh, it, is, uh, it is one of the psalms. I, I can't remember exactly which one. Psalm 44. Uh, it says, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. If that's that your one. life song, <laughs> things are not going well it's in your catchy. life if that's your life song. Yeah. Uh, but this is what Paul says to these people. Uh, he says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not along with him also freely give us all things? And then later on he says, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, we are saved by the love that we trust in, not the love that we exercise. Mm. God loves you supremely, and he demonstrated that love through the sacrifice of his one and only son. And if he loved you enough to do that, he loves you enough to bring you home to heaven. And so we believe in that. That's where our trust is. It's not in our frailties. It's not on what we think. It's not on what we feel. We trust in what God has done. So yeah. uh, once again, as someone who struggles with thoughts like this, verses like this become bastions of safety for us. So mm. I encourage you to, to hold on to that. Anything you'd like to add or clarify on that, Sean? No, oh, and just note as well, if you have a standard for your relationship with God based on your emotions, we test that with Scripture. Mm. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 10 says, the heart, the core of your being, the center of your emotions, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? Then it goes on to note, the Lord's the one who knows the heart. Now, when it comes to our standing before God, if he built a system that was based on how we felt at any given time, none of us would be in any stable relationship with God, let alone an existent one. If, on the other hand, we let his faithfulness be the metric in which we judge our status with God, as you were saying, it's far more dependable. You're going to feel saved more days often than others. You're going to sin some days more than others, but the salvation of Jesus is a constant. That's why we base history, not histamines, or whatever the chemical would be, on our relationship with him. 
Mm. Histamines cause allergic reactions. Yeah. That would be appropriate. <laughs> I needed something with an H. Yeah. So anyway. Just say it with confidence and we believe you. Yes, those histamines. Yeah. That may work in Britain, but I, I like accountability <laughs> on the internet. Left it, left it spearhead that then more <laughs> maria i hope that you were able to join us and i hope that that helps you out um and like peter said as well don't be alone in this you, you even have a, a workbook on the fellowship of suffering right how we in, in community can uh, help each other and you know as you guys shared you know we, we all struggle with these kind of things so you're not alone hope that helps you out marie thank you for that question uh question from adonai our friend out in africa who i understand teaches a bible college is that yeah. right which is pretty cool yeah, he has a question lines. What's that? On the front lines, too. On the front lines, yeah. Yeah, very interesting environment to do that. So God bless you, Adonai. He has a question on Second Kings 16.2. Ahaz was 20 years when he began uh, his king, he began as reigning, king in yeah. Judah, reigning king in Judah, and he reigned for 16 years. This means that he was 36 when he died. If Hezekiah, his son that succeeded him, was 25, this is like a math. Problem. Yeah, we'll, we'll like how many problem. apples were in them? <laughs> it's an important question because yeah, yeah. it leads us to an absurd conclusion, and he wants to know if someone levels this objection: Is the Bible inconsistent about its dates? Is this a textual error? And yeah. uh, thus, the credibility because of the Bible's in. Basically, the math leads to him being eleven, right? When he, when Hezekiah, Hezekiah was, born. was born, is that possible? Yeah. Is the question. Yeah, let's uh, just be careful with the terms because one fatal assumption was made in your dating of Ahaz's death that isn't in the text. So let's just start there. Uh, interestingly enough, we all the passages we'll need in this information are 1 Kings 16, 17, and 18, the first cluster of verses. So keep track of this. Write it down if you have to, and I'll walk you through it. You can double-check my work. But it notes again, and let's just read the passage in verse 2. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. Then goes on to note he was a deadbeat. So he reigned from 20 to 36. Now, does it say that he died at the end of his reign? No, it says that he stopped reigning at the age of 36. Chapter 17 begins, and this will be important, in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah. So Ahaz was called king of Judah for twelve years when Hoshea the son of Elah became king of Israel. That's the northern ten kingdoms. So you got Ahaz, who's been king for twelve years. He reigned for sixteen years. So if he started when he was twenty, this would put him at thirty-four, or thirty-two, right? Now, um, Hoshea, the son of Elah, is king of Israel at the time that Ahaz is 32 years old. Now, here's where Hoshea's name becomes relevant. In 2 Kings 18 and verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king. Notice, reign became king there's a difference but it notes he reigned 29 years in jerusalem and there was a fun circumstances that <laughs> prolonged that but the point being made is apart from the fact hezekiah wasn't a deadbeat like his dad he reigned for such and such amount of time the start of his reign is determined by the king of israel whose name was hoshea and an assumption was made that when you stop reigning that means that you died it does note that Ahaz did physically die. He's not, you know, 
somewhere in Petra, someplace guarding the uh, Holy Grail or something. He's not immortal. He did physically die, but he didn't start to reign. Likewise, reigning doesn't necessarily mean that you're king. Uh, an example of this even outside of Israel, but within the Bible, is in the book of Daniel, chapter 5, where Belshazzar was the co-regent of Nabonidus, according to the Babylonian Chronicle. Little history, but you get the idea. He mentions to Daniel that if you answer the interpretation of the handwriting on the wall mystery, I'll make you third in my kingdom. Well, if he was number one, then wouldn't Daniel be number two? If he was to give him the full breadth of his power to Daniel, why wouldn't it be number two? Well, it was noting the historically verified fact that his father, Nabonidus, by adoption, but you get the point, was still in charge, that he hadn't physically died and Belshazzar wasn't doing anything because if he conquered or won any military battles, his success or his predecessor would get the credit. So note that we have a historical example of someone reigning but not being king. We have a textual clarification that just because they started reigning doesn't mean that they're king, and just because someone stopped reigning doesn't mean that they died. Understand those assumptions. Now let's do the subtraction. If Hezekiah died at a certain age and he started reigning and for such and such a number of years, we add up all this information, what do we know? Well, Ahaz was 32 when what? Hosea started reigning. If Hosea started reigning, when, or had been reigning, for it says five, or excuse me, um, I'm noting the passage again, the third year of Hosea, so then Ahaz would have been what? 35? That's when Hezekiah supposedly had taken the throne. That would put him around 10 years old if he was 25 the moment he started king, uh, reigning as a king. If you note from reign to death, from king to king. But what gives us the actual information? The clarification and the assumption, he stopped reigning, Hezekiah started reigning. That uh, the moment that Hosea took power, that that is in fact the determining factor when Hezekiah was born, but not when Ahaz stopped, stopped breathing, <laughs> essentially. So note the point and the assumptions there, Adonai. When we're talking about the actual dates of these people, the Jewish tradition notes that um, Ahaz and Hezekiah kind of had a handing off of power and authority when he was old enough. There were other instances where people at a decidedly young age took power, but not people who had absurdly uh, young, uh, I guess, entries into parentdom, if you get the point. We have to catch those assumptions. He stopped reigning, but he didn't necessarily die. He started reigning, but that didn't necessarily mean that he was king. Note those assumptions and be careful with the subtraction. The traditions would note time between 5 to 11 years when uh, Ahaz would have had Hezekiah, but you can check these up on your own time. Just note those passages and those assumptions. When it mentions Ahaz dying, we aren't told the date. When it mentions Ahaz beginning to reign, we are told the date, but not in relation to Ahaz. Awesome. Very good. Adnay, thank you for that question. hope that helps you out. Very interesting stuff. A uh, question from Frank. Uh, regarding the Trump prophecies, do you recommend Jonathan Kahn, who prophesied Donald Trump is like a King Jehu after reading the Bible for himself and dug a little deeper and said that Trump will be the savior of America? Is that something you recommend? Of course you do. Of course. I'm the one that first said it. No, <laughs> <laughs> I made it up. And that's when we started throwing rocks. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, yeah, I, I actually don't. I'm not aware of the John Jonathan Kahn. Jonathan Kahn. Yeah, I'm yeah. not. Are you familiar with him, Sean? Uh, he's one of many in the prosperity movement and the self-proclaimed internet prophets who have announced that the word of the Lord came to me and said such and such. They are also associated with false prophecies, saying that Trump would win the previous election. There's also a number of false prophecies that they've also made that aren't relevant to your question, but the point being made is any ministry that formats itself on what we call newspaper eschatology reading modern events into fulfillments of prophecy, or even taking positive notes. The Jewish people referred to Donald Trump as a Cyrus-like figure in his willingness to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, but noting the limits of that, it was just a nickname. It wasn't a fulfillment of prophecy. To compare Trump to Jehu means that he's going to start jacking some fools yeah. if that was to be fulfilled. Start actually killing people. <laughs> yeah, and... <laughs> While our desires for his campaign were for him to drain the swamp, we uh, would not prefer that as the method. So <laughs> the point being made is this. Um, Well-intended people and bad-intended people have both said positive things about the previous administration. Whether they're going to step up again and be proven right or wrong in regards to uh, maybe a re-election or so forth, Here's our contention. Someone comes up and says, thus says the Lord, they've put themselves on a very high and a very narrow mm. and a very consequential pedestal. Yeah. If they fail even once, then they're not to be regarded from that point onward. If they've gotten things right in the past, but also have got things wrong, they still have failed that prophet standard. And of course, when it comes to giving more attention to current events and telling people what they want to hear, that's not the purpose of prophecy. Any ministry that would say, thus saith the Lord, I have a personal prophecy, personal revelation, or our personal favorite. Well, you know what the Bible means to me? I've, t I've had this secret way of uh, interpreting the Bible to reveal these conspiracies and so forth. Have nothing to do with them. It's not edifying. It's not biblical. And of course, it's not consistent. They will and have gotten things wrong. And that's why we don't listen to them because God doesn't. Yeah, another important. We we were talking about this a little on Tuesday. The idea of politics and what's a Christian's involvement within it. It's very it's very disturbing when anyone, not just Christians, start looking at politicians as if they're sell, uh, they're messianic type figures, like people who are there to save you. Politicians are plumbers. You hire them to do a job, <laughs> and they're going to do the job either poorly or well. But they're there to kind of plug systems in. They're there to make things run a little more smoothly and things like that. But that's what they are. They're plumbers. They're not messianic figures. They're not here to save you. And they won't. If, you, if you're if you looking to your politicians to be your saviors, you have a very sad life indeed. Mm -hmm. God is your savior. God is the one who's going to help you. Your community and the people around you are the ones that are going to give you the most active help for the problems that you face on a day-to-day -day level. Mm -hmm. um, your politicians don't know who you are. They have ways of structuring systems to make your life a little bit easier. But again, it's the people in your immediate life. Those are the ones who are going to help you the most. So invest in those relationships above all things. Mm -hmm. um, that's where you're going to get your hope and your, uh, your strength. Mm -hmm. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Frank, for that question. Uh, question from Craig. It's a great question. <clears throat> so Jesus is in a human physical form, which I imagine he always was. Hence, in our image, we were made. No. The spirit is just that uh, spirit, which is unseen but fully known. So what form does God, as in God the Father, take? Um, I come up with him being light 
and love. So, Two things to clarify. What's the image of God, and was Jesus always in a physical body? I'll take mm. the second part. John chapter 1 is very explicit. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and he's then credited as creator. So who created the heavens and the earth? Genesis 1.1. Well, this Word, this logos in Greek, <coughs> is credited to the thing that God did. Therefore, he's God. But then it notes this particular person within God is in John chapter 1 and verse 14, becoming, not is, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld him as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. At a point in history, God the Son adopted human nature and became the God-man. That wasn't always the case. He could take on a physical form if he so chose, but that wasn't his form. John chapter 4 is also, same book, very explicit, God in his substance and his nature is spirit. Not light, not love, spirit, as far as a substance form is concerned. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The context was, where should we worship? And he clarifies, God's not bound by borders. He's not a physical thing. So if we ask the question, was Jesus always a man? Well, no, he became a man at a point of history. But then you make the point about God making us in his image. We tend to think of that as a physical likeness. What is it actually? Yeah, so to make something in your image and likeness is actually an artistic phraseology. So if I were to make something in my image, what I mean is I'm utilizing a material that's not flesh to create something that represents me in some way. That's what that language would uh, delineate for people. So people in the ancient world, when they're reading that, that's what they would understand it to be. God is like an artist, and when you look in Genesis 1, he is creating things like an artist does. He is fashioning the universe, and after each creation, he says it is good. He is reveling in it. And then when he forms and fashions man in his image, that's the idea. Man is the peak expression of God's representation, right? So God being immaterial creates a physical manifestation of his glory in the image of man. So uh, just like, I can't remember who did it, but there was a kind of a snarky artist in the 1600s who drew a beautiful portrait of a cup of coffee and said, this is not a cup of coffee. Uh, that's the title of the painting. Because mm. <laughs> he's like, it's a representation of a cup of coffee. It's not mm. an actual cup of coffee. You got to go to your local coffee dealer to get one of those bad boys. But if you're looking at my painting, it's not going to quench your thirst, but it does give you something. It gives you an idea of a representation of a real thing that does exist. Mm. So humanity, we're not gods. We're not uh, we don't resemble God in that way, but we do represent God in a very particular way. Well, in what ways do, does humanity represent God, specifically that nothing else in the creation does, because he does give us that high and holy calling of being image bearers of the true and living God. Well, you, you mentioned one in your, your answer, the idea of God being love. Mm -hmm. In First John chapter 4, that is biblical. God is love. That's what John says. Uh, what that means is that God in his character, in the totality of his character, is love. It doesn't mean that um, everything that God is is love. It just means that one of the main and prime facets of God's character is that he is love. And the biblical authors do a very good job of showing that love is the completion of the law, meaning that all of ethics is fulfilled in the concept of love, and God is that concept. So all immorality and ethics descend from him. Humanity uniquely has the capacity for love the way that God does, a rational, free will decision to love. 
The animal kingdom has the ability to show affection. It has the ability to show certain types of parental affection and dedication to their offspring and their mates, things like that, some more than others. Uh, but you know, they, they do have those capacities to demonstrate it, but it's not the same as a human being who has rationality, he has the ability to choose uh, the, the people that they love and they care for, who has the moral prerogatives to be able to uh, fashion their behavior and orient it in a way that blesses and takes care of their partner or the people around them that they love. This is mirroring, it is reflecting, it is representing God and his character and being on this earth. Also, our capacity to rule. God, when he places man in the garden, he intends man to rule over his creation. He says to Adam and Eve, uh, fill the earth and subdue it, right? So everything was supposed to be under our dom a dominion, and that is to be reflective of God's rulership in the heavens. So again, it's not that we were actually ruling and reigning over everything, but it's that we represent God as the ruler of the universe mm. to the creation. So there are many other uh, facets to this uh, this concept of being in the Imago Dei and the image of God. But for now, I think that's enough. It's, it's just we represent God in unique ways. Because we're fallen, though, uh, we have kind of a cracked image. We have a marred image of God. So while the facets of God's image are still implanted and embedded within man, we have rational faculties, we have the capacity to love, we have the capacity to administer justice, righteousness, rulership, things like that. It's marred, but through what Jesus has done, him taking on the image of man, dying in our place, and filling us with his spirit, he's given us the ability to remake that image, to go back to what the original intent was, to perfectly represent God to the creation. That's what it means to glorify God, to reveal his invisible image to the visible created world. Uh, will we ever get there this side of heaven? No, but we can make strides towards it. And that is our goal. And that is our center of being as human, as the human species. Mm -hmm. So um, anyone who denies that, by the way, is doing themselves a disservice. That is the high and holy calling of your life, is to be a representative of God's glory. And that's why in the Westminster Catechism, it says, what is the chief end of man? Meaning what's the whole reason why we exist? And their answer, which I think is very good, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Mm. That is what we are here to do. We are mm. here to represent God to the creation. That means reflecting him to the best of our ability and to enjoy him in the process because he is a good God. Mm. Beautiful. So as far as, I mean, the, the forms of God and the Godhead, mm. when we get to heaven, what will we see? Will we literally see the Father sitting on the throne and Jesus by his right hand and the Holy Spirit just breezing around? So the, the question is kind of an interesting one, because when you utilize the terminology see, you're already off on the wrong foot. And this is what makes God's like so mind blowing, because if we're talking about an immaterial thing, well, how do you, quote unquote, see an immaterial thing? Yeah. Um, because we're only used to seeing material things. That's, that's what our eyes are literally designed to do is yeah. to see the material. Uh, well, how do you perceive, how do you experience immaterial? Now we have... We have ways of experiencing immaterial things, right? We experience love and we experience truth and goodness and, and beauty and things like that. But can what the promise of heaven is that we will actually be able to experience God, mm. we'll be able to experience the totality of the supernatural, the spiritual realm in our bodies, right? God's going to give our bodies, he's going to elevate our bodies to be able to not only perceive the physical, but the spiritual. That's radical. I have no idea how that looks because, again, even using that vernacular, it does does it a little bit of a justice. 
I have no idea what it's going to be like, but I do have uh, an ability to conceive that, yes, I will be able to, in some way, perceive the supernatural, to perceive the spiritual. I will be able to perceive the quote-unquote form of God. But again, using the word form is also a disservice to God because it doesn't really have a form, any spirit. But um, so whenever you have people in the Old and the New Testament receiving visions of heaven, the reason why they're experiencing it in a vision form is because you they couldn't actually understand mm. heaven. It's supernatural. Uh, so when some people are like, ah, oh, they're just having like a vision or experience. Well, of course they're having a vision or experience. That, that's the only way they could experience the spiritual realm. Mm. They, they would have to do it through forms like that. That's why the book of Revelation is so metaphoric. It's so drenched in symbols is because God has to communicate it to us somehow and he has to utilize symbols, metaphors, and images and visions to communicate the incommunicable, mm. right? Which would be the spiritual or the supernatural. So we kind of accept this by faith. Yeah. I, I know I'm going to be able to perceive God in heaven. I don't know what that's going to be like at all, though. Yeah. Best summation of heaven is with Jesus. And throughout mm. the entirety of the Old Testament, we've seen that every time the Father's revealed himself to man, it's been through the Son. Mm. That when Isaiah saw the Lord high, lofty, and lifted up, the train of his glory filling the temple, that was the Son, according mm. to the Apostle John, who later emphasized that in his gospel. When we note Moses' encounter with the Lord at the burning bush, it says the angel of the Lord mm. spoke to Moses, saying, I am that I am. Mm. We note that the revelations to Samson, the interaction Interaction that Abraham had with the Lord and the two angels, that was the Son. Mm. So any appearance, any physical revelation is going to continue to be the case into eternity. What we'll see or who will see is the Son. Who will know is the Father, Son, and Spirit. Mm. But note there is a difference between seeing and knowing. Yeah, very good. I remember you sharing that, Sean, uh, towards the end of Revelation, making the point of that with Jesus is that that, that key thing, yeah, which was beautiful. And yeah, and, uh, the, the the really crazy thing is, like I said, you do see people in the Bible experiencing the Son and the Father, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like Joseph Smith, though. Right? Hey, <laughs> He's been in both embodies, but uh, like like Sean said, we're going to be able to experience the Trinity in a way that we just can't really conceptualize right now, but yeah. we will be able to. Yeah, very good, Craig. Thank you for that great question that sparked quite a discussion. Thank you for that, being part of the show. A uh, question from Lydia. She's calling you out by name, Peter Martin. Um, in psych- just she has a question for you. In psychology, do you recommend um, Kevin Lehman? And is the birth order biblical? Having three kids, the oldest child is more likely to be president than my baby, and those born in the 1940s are more aggressive than those born in the 1990s, are more rebellious. Is this true? Um, older siblings are achievers. I'm the oldest child born in the 70s and a lawyer and a mom. So... Is there truth? So, so I guess one, have you heard of Kevin Lehman? Is that someone that you recommend? And also, is there truth to birth order in personalities? Bible questions. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So yeah. Uh, Kevin Lehman, I am aware of him. Uh, I, I do actually like the Lehman Academy. It is a kind of pullback to classical education. Even though Kevin Lehman is a Christian, he wanted to create an education system that would be open and available for everybody. So he didn't uh, open a private school. He instead opened a charter school. Now, I do believe, I don't want to speak for him, I do believe that they are planning on trying to unveil a private school aspect of what they're doing. I don't think they're going to do away with the charter school aspect, though, because of their vision and what they believe. So 
that's absolutely correct. From what I've heard and read of Kevin Lehman, he seems to be a very, very bright guy. He seems to be very uh, God-fearing, Holy Spirit-filled, all that stuff. Mm. Seems like an Orthodox Christian to me. And he also is very schooled in psychology and sociological things. That's why he invested so much of his time and efforts into an educational program as opposed to like a church, because that's where his facets and gifts lie. Mm. Um, Now, when it comes to the birth order, is there any type of definitive argument from the Bible that birth order gives us our temperaments and things like that? Well, we don't really see it in the Bible, but once again, with all things, when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture— What we don't mean is that you can learn everything you need to in life from the Bible. What we mean is that the Bible creates, it's like a lens. It creates a perfect lens from which you can view all things in the world perfectly in a way that actually reflects God and his purposes. So when I'm looking at the investigations into nature, whether it be going through a mathematical book and I'm looking at someone who is figuring out the mathematical world, if I look at it from the lens of Scripture— I will be able to see where it derails from the Bible and God's truth and where it doesn't. Since it's math, it, it, unless someone just is bad at math, it's not going to do that. Uh, but, you know, even if I'm going through historical textbook, if I'm going through uh, various other like botanist textbooks and things like that, I'll be able to weed out, pun intended, the ver- varieties of things that go against God's plan and purposes or the theology that should underpin my understanding of the world. And I'll be able to. Uh, embrace the things that coalesce with God and who he is and who he's revealed himself to be. So when it comes to the birth order, there's nothing in the Bible that's antagonistic towards it. There's nothing in the Bible that says, well, temperament doesn't really mean anything and you're not shaped by your experiences. You clearly are. Uh, The things that have happened to you in your life have contributed a good portion to the kind of individual you are today, right? So it's not just your nature. There are things that are just inherent to you. As a particular person, uh, when you're born, you have a very particular temperament, and then that temperament is shaped and honed through your experiences. And so, yeah, you're going to have a very different experience as an oldest child as opposed to a younger child. One of the benefits that an oldest child has is that they have more one-on-one time with mom and dad, right? Once you have more than one kid, mom and dad's attention is now split between their multiple children. That's Mm -hmm. why there have been studies that have shown that oldest children and only children, right? Only childs and Mm -hmm. oldest children tend to be more of the entrepreneurs. They tend to be more individualistic and they tend to be more successful than their younger siblings. Mm -hmm. Now, some people will complain about that because it goes against our egalitarian uh, sensibilities as Americans of like, no, that's not true. Anyone could be anything. Well, well, this is not true. Anyone cannot be anything. (laughs) Uh, A five foot seven guy, he might be a very good guy, but he's not going to be an NFL linebacker no matter how much he wants it. Uh, There are things that God has allowed into your life, both natural and in your nurture, the environment you were brought up in, that have shaped you and made you specifically the person you are with your particular gift set and with your particular abilities. Now, again, these are generalities. They're just here to kind of help us understand what might have taken place to contribute to the kind of individual I am. When you start assuming that this is like the word of God and I am a firstborn, so therefore I will be an entrepreneur or I am a secondborn, so I'll never be as successful as my older sibling. That's not true. It's just a generality. These tend to hold true for most people. Mm. It's not always going to be true across the board. And I believe Kevin Lehman even says that, right? These are generalities to help us understand our experience. They're not there to be 
uh, fatalistic dictate from on high of if you were born under this sign or if you were born in these circumstances, this is your future. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're not into astrology. We're not into the zodiac system. It's just not like that. There are ways that you can even fight against your birth order. Once you know the obstacles that are put against you, you can fight against it and live out the most successful life that you possibly can. Yeah. And you have three sisters, two sisters? Two sisters, one of I'm the youngest. Yeah. Have you seen that in your... So I'm the least successful. Yeah. <laughs> so it, I'm just spoiled. I'm temperamental. It does hold true. <laughs> it absolutely holds yeah. true. <laughs> yeah, but you have a younger sister and I have an older brother. And I think some of those, I mean, I've seen you bring that into counseling, you know, the, the, like you say, the even though it's not laid out in the Bible, it, it does, it has an influence and can, mm-hmm. you know, something looked into, I think, in my life. It's, well, Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Some people take that to say, oh, well, that means that if I, you know, share the gospel with my kid, they're going to get saved. No, the literal parsing in the Hebrew is train up the child in his way. We're all Mm. different. We're all individuals, and we need to be treated, raised, and addressed individually. I was more of a hard-nosed kid. My dad had to be more strict with me. My sister, you look at her weird, and she breaks down crying. So (laughs) there was a difference in how my dad approached us, not because of birth order, but because we were not the same person. That's why we have different names. Yeah, very good. Well, great show. Peter, thank you. Sean, thank you. That's all we have time for today. Thank you for your questions. Great questions. I just love seeing where the show goes all over the place. You never know. Join us back uh, tomorrow. What's tomorrow? Friday. We're back with you same time, same places for some more of the same. God bless you. Have a wonderful rest of the evening. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word. One question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.